my own career began um, in Carysford. I went there for two years for primary school teaching. And at the same time, I had what I can only describe as a bug to do music, which just would not desert me. It was there all the time. And no matter how much I suppose I denied it, I just had this longing to develop myself in musical ways. So I did an extern degree from Trinity. They had an extern Musby at the time, which pretty much meant getting up at 6am and doing my theory, um, practising the organ for an hour before going up, doing a day's teaching, coming back after school, another two or three hours practising, and history, whatever. It, uh, most of the work I had to do on my own. Um, I, I was just so extremely interested, I decided I really wanted to know as much as was possible and was prepared to put in my spare time. When... In 1981, I think December 1981, the ad for the director of the Palestrina Choir was in the paper. I had just um, finished my degree in the previous summer and uh, I suppose just everything came together. Tell me about the audition for the job. Um, well, there were two sections, I think. One was an interview, a formal interview, and the second was working with the choir. I remember coming up those stairs which are three flights high and uh, finding this sign that said area hazardous do not enter and wondering oh my god I'm in the wrong place and then having to say be brave you know if you don't go up here now you're going to miss out but anyhow I, I did actually eventually find the choir room and I had the audition consisted of taking the boys of the choir for a rehearsal about 40-45 minutes and then bringing them through a service of vespers I was asked to take some music that they had done that they knew um, a piece they wouldn't have sung for a while and then a new two-part anthem and really once that door closed behind me and I was left with the boys and had a service within an hour it was really up to me to actually make it work or not and uh, I know I enjoyed it I, I felt at the time I actually had nothing to lose I didn't expect a woman would be given the job I was just recently qualified myself in my degree uh, I knew I had lots of advantages insofar as I'd studied liturgy I had Latin for my leaving cert um, I was fairly good with choirs I knew I could do that anyhow so um, I had nothing to lose I just decided I was going to enjoy myself <laughs> and you know as it turned out they did actually offer me the job It was a bit unusual you as a woman taking over Well yes <laughs> at the time I must say I never thought I would be considered simply because I was female um, it was very much an all male choir had been for a long time clerical situations an all male situation and Edward Martin had been extremely careful when he set up the choir to write into the constitution that no woman could be a member of the choir but in actual fact he forgot to put in that no woman could direct the choir so with that loophole I think I got by Well when you began the work as director what sort of goals did you set yourself for instance musically what were the tasks that you decided you wanted to tackle? Well, firstly, I think I decided I had to look after the, the local liturgy. The most important event per week was a Sunday Mass. And it was my ambition right from the start that the choir would eventually have a repertoire which would cover different music for every Sunday of the, the liturgy, of the liturgical year, or as much variation in programme as possible. I began in March, so between March and June, I suppose I just ticked over whatever music was already there but began in earnest to build a new repertoire from September I remember the first few weeks in September we started off um, and I did a mass which at that stage probably was just Kiri on you stay and two new motets on the first Sunday but uh, the first week anyhow was kind of literally four pieces to learn 
from scratch, get together and perform on Sunday. The second week, I came out with four new pieces. By the third week, I could say, okay, we can take something from week one, maybe one of those, and cut down our work a little bit. But uh, it really was a very hard slog for that first 12 months, September to June, um, and just being very ambitious, making the choir work hard, learning new music as much as possible. And by the end of the year, we'd actually built up a repertoire of something like 40 motets and I think the 10, 12 masses. And that I'm talking about polyphonic style and maybe some boys' music. But that was really an incredible amount of music considering the choir as a full group only rehearsed for one hour a week. We were really quite ambitious in that year and I remember one thing that I really wanted to do with the choir was... um, a motet, or a few motets, but one in particular by Duroufle, a French composer, and that's Ubi Caritas. I think when we well, began to learn it, we really were way, we were well out of our depth, I suppose, the first few times in rehearsal, and then gradually came together. And it became one of the choir's favourite pieces of all times. It's based on plain chant. The, the actual chant tune is so beautifully preserved, and yet these wonderful harmonies and moderate idiom uh, surrounding it. And we sang it for the first time in a concert in St. Patrick's College from Condor at a Kodai seminar. very young when you were appointed to the job. I mean, it must have been a fairly daunting task. What were the goals you set yourself as you started in the job? I think firstly, I wanted to build up the choir in cathedral and develop it as a cathedral choir. And secondly, I wanted to take it from cathedral 
and develop it on a more national and international scene so that the choir would, having gone away, come back home and have improved its standards, have met other groups, have seen how other singers sing or heard how other singers sing. And um, just, the, I suppose what I've often called it is a spiral development. I was quite happy to give it quite a number of years to go from where I was to where my vision brought me. One of the main aspects, of course, of the vision would be the whole educational system. Um, what good is having a wonderful voice if you can't read? <laughs> and um, over the years, I developed a training scheme by taking the children into an initial class outside of the choir proper and teaching them through the Kodai method, just very informally for their first year, and then gradually integrate them into the full choir um, by, by developing the repertoire at the same time and having different music almost every week and more than every week, um, then the younger boys learned from the older boys how to approach the music, following the dots going up and down, until eventually the penny struck with them. Aha, now this we know we're reading music. I mean, they were reading before they knew what they were doing. Also, I continued on um, the training scheme that Sean O'Harkey had introduced, which is based in the Royal School of Church Music, um, but adapted it to my own needs and uh, added in a lot of particular tests which were suited to the choir and the choir's repertoire. And really it has paid off because now I could give the boys as a group something in even three, maybe even four parts um, and they can actually sight-read simultaneously. All your mummies and daddies and brannies know this tune. A maiden most gentle and tender we see. No, a maiden most gentle. This word must be very careful. It must not sound just bashed out. With the intro. Well, you you grow to love the music that you're doing every week, and um, it's a challenge because you have to learn every, new new music every week. Well, I just I just enjoy music. I mean, music is like life outside school, really. That's what it is. Um, choir singing is the biggest part of my musical life. I just I really enjoy the choir because it involves a lot of teamwork. It's di- much different to solo singing. Anybody who sings like a soloist here just doesn't get on as well. You have to sing par- as part of a team. Well, if you attend the choir, you can earn earn your way up through the ranks of the choir and um, obviously the more you attend and the more you're committed to the choir the better you do and the more senior you become so it's always a great challenge to see how far you can get in the choir What about the choir director? She's a tough taskmaster What do you think of her? Ah, she's she's okay A couple of laughs sometimes but uh, most, most, of the, most of the time it's just down to work which is okay. It's all for the best, I think. I mean, she's a great director. A lot of the time she just, you know, leaves us to ourselves to learn it and then she perfects it up and uh, gets us through the music together, you know. It's all all for the better. She might might be tough, but it's made us good anyway. Well, I think if, if she wasn't so strict, I would never have learned to read music, which we can do pretty well now. 
And um, if she wasn't as tough as she is, it wouldn't be as easy to learn because there isn't any messing allowed. So it, you don't get distracted. Now, all this repertoire building, of course, meant we had better music, more music, and we were able to diverge a bit from polyphonic. And I think a second major goal of mine would have been to introduce more music of the Viennese style because I didn't don't think they sang much of that before my time. And we have a system now by which we sing Viennese mass about once a month. And Mozart has always been one of the greatest favourites. I think the choir have a great affinity with Mozart's style. We've, we've also, of course, done Schubert and Beethoven. And um, they just they love singing it. And one of our favourite pieces actually would be Mozart's Laudate Dominum.
Well, I think every major trip abroad has been a highlight, there's no doubt. The very first trip was in 1985, we went to Paris, to uh, the Puri Contoris International Convention. And from that, we just, I think we literally got launched on the European scene um, in one fell swoop when we sang uh, at the gala concert in the Salle Playel. And from then on, we just made the effort every year, every time it was on, to actually attend the Pueri Contores, wherever they may be. There was also the second side to that. Um, we were invited to specific events abroad because of choirs who heard us singing at Pueri Contores events. I, I think, really, everywhere we've gone, there's been a tremendous welcome for us as singers and in particular as Irish people. And no better, I think, than in Canada. One of our really best memories in Canada, I think, was open-air concerts down at the seafront when we sang Shine Allelu and had all the French Canadians joining in singing in Irish with us. <laughs> None of this could have happened without the parents of the boys of the choir. There's absolutely no doubt. From our very first trip in 1985, uh, the enthusiasm that came and the help and support from everybody associated with the choir was just out of this world. I think we, we have developed over the years a big family. There's the initial group of the family of the choir who's actually there. That's the boys who are actually in the choir at the time and their mammies and daddies. And they generally make up the committee of choir parents. But there's also that great extended family. There are people still connected with the choir whose children have long since grown up and may not even sing anymore or maybe in pop groups and rock groups, as I know some of them are. Um, but that family connection has never been lost. And between, I think, just having cake sales and raffles and plant sales and putting on functions or um, having concerts that people attended, I mean, all these events organised by the parents that people have supported and then, of course, the bigger ways than the business sponsors who've come along through these same, very self-same connections. Um, you know, the money always just happened to get there. We we managed uh, our last trip, for example, to the States and that cost about £50,000, which was an enormous amount of money. But I, I don't know how the parents did it. But they did. And of course, the choir family extends way back. It's not just the parents and boys who are there since I took over. One particular time of the year when we try to remember our past members and family members who have deceased would be on the first Sunday of November when we sing For a Requiem. And it's our way of saying thanks to the singers over the years who've kept this choir alive and to all the people who've supported us and it probably is the one of the 
Sundays in the year that the choir themselves look forward to most. Well, there have been just so many highlights. Um, I think the choir singing in the town of Palestrina for the beginning of the 400th anniversary of Palestrina's death, that for the beginning of those celebrations, that, that was a, a wonderful experience for us. Um, just to be there and to be the choir to start off the year as such. Um, every Every place has so many wonderful memories, really, but probably for me, the big, big highlight will certainly be New York. I remember in 1985 when we began our trips, we were thinking, God, we really should go to America. We should go to sing in New York. And it was like a distant goal, a distant dream we would never really get. It was kind of the new world. We're never going to make it. And here we were in 1995 and we were actually there and singing to me one of the most glorious masses ever composed. And that's Mr. Papi Marcelli. 
Um, that's an experience none of us will ever forget. The journeys really were major, major highlights over the years. I mean, that's I suppose that's what made it interesting for the boys. They had a goal at the end of the year, but the goal was a reward for their normal work. And their normal work was a very heavy schedule of um, of rehearsals. You know, when we actually did quite an amount of music per minute, not only per hour, um, we might go through 15, 20 different pieces in a two-hour rehearsal. And this is just with the boys on a Wednesday and literally breeze through it and get next Sunday's music ready, Sunday week's music ready, let's start a new piece for Vespers for the boys, uh, an anthem, maybe have a look at a boys-only mass we're going to do four weeks on, or, of course, the biggie every year, getting the concert programme ready for the National Concert Hall, or for before that in the Royal Hospital Kilmainham. And one of our very special Christmas pieces, of course, is Fintan O'Carroll's Soon Three, which we have, like Shan Ellaloo, you know, we've, we've taken as one of our Irish pieces abroad, and it's it's one of our real favourites. And, the, you know, the, there are some pieces that you just take out of the cupboard and the choir say, oh, great, let's sing that.
There's a lot of behind-the-scenes with a director. People think that the director is just there waving their hands about. And, you know, waving their hands about is a signalling device to the choir. And with her hands, she's able, Ita is able to communicate musically to us um, how to sing the piece. But she also puts in an awful lot of work behind the scenes, like sorting out the music, um, what music, putting in relevant music, to the readings and the gospel that there is that week. And one of the most important things has to be her musical um, her musical technicalities that she has herself. And uh, that's one thing that Isha um, has a lot of. We've learned so much music over the years, it's unbelievable. As gentlemen now who have grown up through the choir, we do other concerts with other people, with other groups. And they're impressed by our ability to sight read and to lead just to take charge or just you know second nature you just come in and it's not a case of uh, of being weary about being with a new group you can take charge and it's a very good quality to learn it it also rubs off in other walks of life that we learned that lesson from me to you know you take charge and in other walks of life it's happened to I'm sure all of us where we have that natural ability to take over and be able to lead and really do a good job. She's a tough taskmaster. She is and she isn't. Um, Isha, she's tough when it's her job. She's serious about her job. She gets things done. She doesn't want any messing. Okay, there is a time and a place for everything. And, you know, especially around Christmas time when there's, the morale is kind of high. Um, we have our jokes, we crack the jokes, and we have a laugh. But um, she's not... She's not very hard on us, I don't reckon. Um, if she is hard on us, it's always for the better of the choir. Every choir boy would probably testify that when you get given out to by Ita, it's uh, you get a lump in your throat, not because of the uh, of the uh, giving out, but uh, because you feel to yourself, really, I wish I hadn't. This is the one person I really wish was not given out to me. You know what I mean? You get teachers and that, and you have to live with that, but when you come in here and you're enjoying yourself, and there's a family atmosphere, you really think to yourself, as a child, my God, it's like your mother giving out to you and you feel really bad about it. Oh, well, our uh, contribution, I think, um, everyone would agree, has been superb. Um, our knowledge of the music required is, is, is quite honestly second to none, and her devotion to this music and its performance is uh, beyond praise. Um, 
on a personal level, uh, I introduced my son to her as a boy chorister, a very young boy chorister in 1987, and um, she encouraged him in every way possible. And uh, he, he quite truthfully took to it uh, like a duck to water, could read music very quickly and uh, progress very quickly in the choir, and is now um, training to be a professional musician in London. And I, I certainly would like to put on record my debt of gratitude to Ita for her part in his musical training. Oh, she is top class. Uh, one of the things, as we kind of see in society, women always have to work harder to make it to a same position that men have to. And Isha has worked and worked and worked, and she's actually gone above other colleagues like um, that we've met from other choirs. And she's way above them, I reckon, anyhow. I think my first job is actually to be a psychologist. <laughs> I'm very interested, actually, in the individual development of each child. And one thing I try and make it very clear right from the start is that the children are competing only with themselves. Each boy, each individual is working for himself to develop his own personal talent. There's no such thing as you have to be as good as so-and-so or better than so-and-so. I mean, from my point of view, that, that's not the point. The point is that they all have a particular gift in a singing voice and a particular gift in an intelligence and in concentration and dedication. And when all these things come together and the child really has worked as hard as he can and has you know, given, given of his best, that's the promise you know, they make when they're enrolled, to give of his best at all times... At the end, when they've really done what they should do and they're giving back to the choir, which to me is everything, it's not what they get from the choir, it's what they can give back when the voice is in a physical situation that it can give back, then they have earned their solos and they've earned the credit of being a leader or being even the head boy. And everybody really should get there to the top. They're, as I said, they're competing only with themselves. They encourage each other. They help each other. I mean, sometimes they get a little fellow, and I'm absolutely amazed he comes to me and he can sing this difficult chant. And I say, who helped you with that? And he'll say, oh, so-and-so. And I realise another one of my little choir boys, 12-year-old maybe, has taken the time to help a 9-year-old do something better. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And then so every now and then you, you come across the exceptional voice and certainly he deserves and gets some of the main solos. One of the pieces we all love, I mean, I think from the men and the boys, all of us, we love to sing it, uh, Vaughan Williams' O Taste and See. And in this, we really hear, you know, the, the developed solo voice and how he can blend, and of course blend with the choir, even though he's singing the solo, the choir coming in with him at certain sections, he has to be able to count and not, not try to be an individual from the choir, but singing the special solo as part and parcel of the work of the choir.
it's nearly 14 years since you took up the job and you've now decided to leave. Is there anything that you would have liked to achieve that you didn't achieve? Well, at my interview, I asked, would there ever be a choir school? And I think that still is something that is waiting to be done. Um, I can't understand why a diocese as big as Dublin with 95% Catholic population of the city hasn't got um, a choir school, really, and maintaining a choir school. Um, I think we have all, we've achieved a tremendous amount on very limited resources ourselves. But think how glorious it would be if the kids all attended the one school in the city centre or city area, not even a choir school proper, even if we were semi-choir school type, if they even all came to, sco- to school in town and sang services every day. I mean, look at it the other way. Look at all we're missing out by them not doing that. How much better they would sing if they were in contact every day of the week or even six days of the week rather than just three days a week. All I can say is I just look on what has been achieved and I know that's only the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more. Given what you've done with the Palestrina over the years, it must have been a very big decision to decide to leave. Why did you take it? And more importantly, where are you going to go from here musically? Well, I'll start with where am I going, and I'll answer that by saying I've always been somewhere else. Um, All my time um, with the Palestrina Choir, I've been working full-time elsewhere anyhow, so that's the obvious question. I'm just simply going to relax a little bit and just do my full-time job, which is at the present up in the College of Music. Um, Why I'm leaving... Well, it's been 14 years almost. It's a long time out of my life. Um, in Ireland, we don't have the situation you have abroad where there's kind of a, a cycle of cathedrals where you'd go as choir director from one to the next. There really is no place to go directly from the Palestrina Choir um, to a similar setup. And so, I mean, I always knew when the day came that I was going to decide to go. That was it from that particular type of choir in Ireland. Um What else I'll do is not quite clear yet. I certainly feel that the training scheme that I've worked with and developed with the boys is too valuable to leave behind me. I would be very interested in doing something of a similar nature in a different setup, maybe with boys' choir and the girls' choirs, two separate groups, and then maybe watch the little boys and little girls grow up to be lady and men singers rather than just the boys into the men and um, there's actually great possibilities of what could be achieved and no doubt I'll get myself involved in lots of things. What Ida O'Donovan is leaving behind her um, number one is a love of music it's probably one of the most positive influences I think that anybody can have on any child is to give them a love of music and some people say that probably the greatest gift you can give a child is a book that's probably true as well but certainly music encompasses more music allows them to appreciate um from an oral sense in other words what they hear they can appreciate some children even at very young ages are now becoming quite critical of certain types of music that they might hear they can actually speak with great authority she has given them that a love of liturgical music a love of ceremony that you tend to exclusively get in the cathedral setting she has given them a sense of ethos a sense of behaviour Um, She has also given them a a tremendous degree of respect and and, and that's coupled in with the ethos of what a cathedral singer should be. 
it doesn't just finish um, once the ceremony is over. It, it continues right on into their lives. Well, I think there's always one magical highlight at, at a, kind of a major ceremony for us, normally Christmas and Easter, and that's singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And certainly my last piece of conducting with the choir in service will be on Christmas Day, at the very end of Mass. And I'm looking forward to giving the Hallelujah a bash, as I say. We'll, you know, we'll sing it through and the congregation usually stay for it all. And it, it's really, it's a wonderful moment. Everybody's exhausted up to the last moment of Mass because we've been on the go for so many weeks. It's the final push, really. And then suddenly you have this lively singing, these live faces looking up at you. Hallelujah. And off we go. Hallelujah. 